Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Christian here. Yes, it's still through line. You haven't been bamboozled, but where's the little sound thingy? Where's the conversation, the juicy dialogue? Don't worry, I have it queued up. My finger's hovering over the button, or, well, my cursor is ready to drag it in when I edit this together later. But before all of the conversing hullabaloo, I finally got a taste of every podcaster's greatest opportunity. A promo code! And also, I guess, the ability to talk about a product they're actually excited about. Or, well, it's both a service and a product. One of the biggest problems that I have with putting together this whole throughline package is knowing how to give the people what they want. Which musicians to cover, how funny I should be, if I should start a TikTok. But one thing that the people often want from a business or project or property they're passionate about is merch. And what better way to personalize your merch than with stickers? Sticker Mountain is an online experience that is dedicated to delivering you the best stickers and labels so that you can sell your products, grow your business, and focus on your passions. Simple interactive interfaces, competitive prices, and a support team that has the same passion and attention to detail as if they were right down the road from you come together into a package that's damn near impossible to beat. With tons of material options and bulk discounts on bigger orders, it's something that even I can't resist, and frankly, I'm a bit of an analysis nerd if you couldn't tell yet. Their color matching is a highlight and something they pride themselves on, and for good reason. At Sticker Mountain, you'll find everything you need to get the product labels, merch stickers, and more onto your booths, into your stores, and into the hands of your customers. And by listening to this podcast, you've unlocked a special reward. For a limited time, you can use the code THROUGHLINE2022, all lowercase, to get 10% off your next order at StickerMountain.com. Make the most of it. Stock up. I can personally attest to the quality and care that goes into each order, and I'm confident you'll be excited you looked them up too. Go see what they have at StickerMountain.com and use the code THROUGHLINE2022 for that lovely, lovely discount. Now, for all y'all that stuck around, time to hit that funny little sound button. Hey everyone, my name is Christian, and welcome back to Throughline, the podcast where we try to find the concept in non-concept albums. 
Throughline, as the groundbreaking niche album literary analysis podcast it is, would not exist if it weren't for the assistance of two really important entities. First, Throughline is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network, the premier place to find podcasts covering all kinds of music-related topics and more. With their brand new, easy-to-use app, it's the best way to find new music, explore the history of music, and hear the stories about the people who make and listen to music. Second, Throughline is a proud spin-off of the Audio Judo podcast, a well-researched and entertaining foray into all kinds of albums and how they fit into the host's personal musical experiences. Check them out wherever you podcast. Today, we're covering a bit of a recent favorite of mine, a band that was put on my radar by my dad and got some pretty extensive airplay for one of their singles on a number of indie stations like Alt Nation and maybe even the radio, maybe? A band that's been around for a while, but I'd only ever heard one song of theirs prior to their most recent album. We're covering the not-quite-emo-adjacent-anymore rock band Manchester Orchestra. Now, I wanted to cover one of their most recent albums, Million Masks of God or A Black Mile to the Surface, because the former is excellent and I actively listen to it, and the second is also interesting and contains that single I already knew. However, both of these are concept albums already, because of course they are. Concept albums are far more common than I thought they were, it turns out, so maybe I'll have to do reconcepts like Hounds of Love more regularly. But due to these unfortunate limitations that I happen to notice at least before picking the album this time, we're going to cover a classic from their catalog, one often considered by devout fans to be one of, if not their best. It's Mean Everything to Nothing. Now, Mean Everything to Nothing is absolutely not at all what I was expecting, having come from my knowledge of Black Mile and Million Masks. While those two albums are sonically explorative and atmospheric, the lead singer melodic and subdued, Mean Everything to Nothing is hard rock, and the singer, mind you, the exact same guy, Andy Hull, absolutely belts out the lyrics for many of the songs, nearly sounding like he's permanently damaging his throat half the time, as these screaming lyricists are wont to do. Released in 2009 under their own personal record label Favorite Gentleman, it was a surprise success. The album before this, their first, went largely unnoticed, save for one song appearing in an NHL game, but this one saw them chart for the first time, reaching 37 on the US Billboard chart and 11 on the rock album charts, and expanding their review presence to achieve an aggregate Metacritic score of 73, receiving generally pretty good reviews. Some sites even heaped on the praise, scoring them between 4.5 and, and 5 out of 5. Despite this, I have absolutely no idea how many total records this album sold, but it's a fair play it's only gotten better with time, as different sources have pointed out how they sell out nearly every reprinting moments after they're announced. 
Now, if you've never heard of Manchester Orchestra, they're a bit of an evolution. Starting out as an emo-adjacent hard rock band at a pretty young age, they dwelled within the Atlanta musical sphere for a few years before slowly gaining reputation and popularity prior to their biggest release, A Black Mile to the Surface, in 2017, cracking the top 10 on the Billboard chart for the first time and getting their first big radio single in the gold. From their beginning, they've swayed sounds until finally arriving at an alt-rock, indie-rock, Americana hybrid in their last two albums. They have almost 2.7 million listeners on Spotify in the past month alone, with a number of their singles in the multi-millions, having a pretty dedicated following of fans worldwide. They've played over 900 shows over multiple tours, including many stops at popular music festivals like Lollapalooza. And with six albums already made, but Andy Hall and the rest of the band only in their mid-30s, it's likely there will be plenty more before they hang up their caps. Now, as an important disclaimer for before the part where we talk about getting into the episode, this album covers a number of heavy themes. These include self-harm, suicide, depression, and addiction. So if any of these topics you would rather not hear about, this is your fair warning that this album will cover some of these topics in detail. I thank you so much for getting this far, and I implore you to check out the rest of our catalog and see See what else we have to say on some of our other albums. We'll be sure to make sure to include these disclaimers going forward in the future to make sure that people aren't blindsided by conversations about topics that they would rather not hear. Please keep us honest with this as we go forward, but we wanted to make sure we were doing our due diligence. Now, this episode is already going to be pretty long, so much so that we really don't even have time at the end to do our normal conversational section. I, I know, I know, it's blasphemous, but getting into the weeds of the breakdown, I believe you'll probably understand why. But either way, without any more announcements, anything else to cover, and no big events I need to talk about yet, it's time to get into it with this week's episode of Throughline, Manchester Orchestra's Mean Everything to Nothing. So to immediately address the elephant in the room about Manchester Orchestra, it's likely noted by many that this band is fairly religiously oriented. A pretty sizable chunk of the songs on their albums encounter faith or the Christian God or belief in some way or another. I mean, their most recent album is even called A Million Masks of God. So now if you've been listening to my podcasts with any regularity over the past half a year, hey y'all, it's been half a year. But if you've joined in a few times, you will likely know a bit of my political stance and a bit of my general opinions as a person. Fairly progressive, pretty outspoken, sometimes a little inflammatory. Now, you wouldn't be remiss for thinking that these aren't exactly the traits of your typical believer. And, well, you'd be right. For a long time, I've been mostly an atheist. I do not personally believe in a higher power, but I also do not know the full breadth of reality. We're just beginning to grasp straws at quantum mechanics, and it's starting to become more and more like we're entering into a stage of science that will largely be incomprehensible to humanity. Not for lack of trying, but because we aren't evolutionarily equipped to understand the ins and outs of fourth dimensional space, or quantum entanglement, or corkspin, 
So really, who knows what's out there in the end? But the important thing to see surrounding all of this, despite my personal removal from it, is that faith is not inherently a bad thing. Religion has held a variety of functions since the dawn of civilization, and while some of these functions have been a bit less savory, and perhaps a bit more murdery than others, many others are fundamental to the growth of civilization as a whole. Religion likely helped pioneer charity, giving to others who have less, or providing safe spaces to individuals in need. Religion has built incredible pieces of architecture, testaments to the creativity and talent of mankind through the ages. Religion has helped to provide light to those in the dark, hope to those in despair, and peace in times where chaos was all but certain. Yet, despite all of its good, it's hard to separate from its bad sometimes. And the hardest to separate are the tragedies of the world violently shaking the foundations of reason. How could these things be so bad if your faith is all good? If your God is all good? And this is the intersection in which we find a lot of Manchester Orchestra's catalog, and very specifically this album, Mean Everything to Nothing. Between devoted faith to an all-knowing healing power and stabbing doubt of its reality in the face of horrific circumstances. Just listen to the passive-aggressive nature of In My Teeth, the fifth song on the album. I don't know what you want anymore. There's no real way to interpret this line beyond exasperation at a situation in which his faith isn't helping. What else can I do if you won't do anything? I have to pray regularly for 500 days to even get a shot at some help, a currency exchange that doesn't feel worth it. But despite the numerous references to Jesus or God or the Holy Spirit, etc., this album manages to avoid sounding like a worship record, or even a churchy record that much to begin with. I mean, it'd be hard to imagine songs like Shake It Out to be played on a church stage. Trust me, as a kid who volunteered every Saturday and Sunday to set up the eight gimbal lights we had to decorate our middle school church auditorium stage for the band every weekend, I know what a rocking church song sounds like. And Shake It Out is just way too scary for that. But besides the sound, the other method through which this album avoids this being the most obvious narrative throughout is by introducing another aspect. Aspect, his relationship to the people around him, and most specifically to his friends. The album not only makes reference to at least four different names throughout the album, three of them in song titles, although to be fair, one of them is a serial mascot, it also has at least two songs that reference friend groups in general, I've Got Friends and Pride. Now, having a lot of references to people and or friends does not necessarily imply that the album has something to do with friendships or close relationships. However, each of these songs does in some way analyze the current state with which the lead character experiences these friendships, whether good or bad. For example, I've Got Friends rides an ambiguous line between friends that you're on the outs with and friends that are actively worried for you. Take a listen to the chorus.
I know what they want, and I know they don't want me to stay. This could very well mean that his friends have had enough of him for one reason or another, or it could also mean that his friends don't want him to remain in some stuck state, possibly a depressive or manic one, or even one that sidles with addiction. Addiction is another common thread throughout the album, finding purchase from pride to I can feel a hot one, and having tendrils that stretch and strike points throughout the rest of the album. Lines like, Mana is a hell of a drug, I need a little more I think because enough is never quite enough, are hard to dispute, and this is absolutely something we will explore later, but the really interesting part of this is how it ties fully back around into our first topic, God. Mana, as an idea, is typically defined as the food of the gods, the sustenance of the heavens, an ethereal force of energy and life. So ingrained is it into the idea of some mystical power that the regularly common term for magical endurance, the amount of spellcasting reserves one has available in everything from card games to video games to books, is simply called mana, just dropping one of the ends. This blending of religious context into incredibly human vice is one that introduces a layer of ambiguity over the entire situation, creating a fluid meaning that has possibilities in many branching directions directions. Is this album, on one hand, a story of someone who is struggling to accept the help of their friends as they battle addiction and refusing the aid of their faith for fear that they don't deserve it? Or is this album a story of someone whose faith comes at the cost of their friendships, this feeling of grace so addicting that it begins to unravel their life? Or possibly is it simply about someone who is looking to know what the right thing to do is and is reevaluating their relationship with their friends? through the re-examination of their relationship with God in order to determine whether or not either is beneficial to figuring it all out. Because after all, if you believe that the only way to be a good person is through following the tenements of faith, then you're not a good person, merely acting good for fear of punishment. But this is a lot of questions, but not a whole hell of a lot of answers. So let's explore the album and see if we can't uncover one of these, or none of these, paths along the way. Let's do something we've never done before and feel out the through line as we go. Let's connect the lines and threads and weave together a pattern of coherence, a quilt of understanding. And, well, it can't be started without looking at song one, the only one. Already, we're conflicted. Verse 1, the chorus, and the title of the song all work in tandem to create, essentially, a triangle of confusion. We are already at the intersection of faith, doubt, and self-deprecation. Verse 1 chastises himself for being a son of a pastor who does the things I do, likely sin. The chorus enters into a discussion of fate, confused as to why he would act this way if something had designed him. But if something had designed him, then is it really that bad that he 
does those things because it's what he was meant to do. But then even further, if something had designed him, then his decisions are barely his own, so he just wouldn't matter. All of this fighting with the simple fact that the song is titled The Only One, a clear reference to a monotheistic belief that there is a god and only one god. His faith is still present, if being challenged and subsequently finding himself unsure if he is deserving of that faith. The song from this point on only continues to unravel. We're firmly entrenched in the midst of a character struggling to ascertain their place in the world and their place in their faith. This is a story that seems like it has an abrupt start, but really hammers home the idea of this all spilling out in a straw that broke the camel's back type moment. Something has triggered this roiling doubt to spill over, and now it won't stop until the flood has finished its destruction or been washed away. In just verse 2, he refers to his father as a bastard, as well as Jesus himself as a bastard, which is technically true, as he was born of a spirit of God and an unwed mother. The song in chorus 2 then doubles down on his criticism of God's plan, saying that he wouldn't have had this all go this way, that he wouldn't have saddled himself with these battles. It'd be a different story, a simpler story. The bridge then introduces another you. Take a listen. I bet you did what you did when you did it just to tell every friend that you had that the Lord did it. He's finally turning his gaze outward in this dumpster fire of a scene to point out that not only is he struggling with his faith, his friend is actively claiming some mystical connection to God that granted him a boon to rub it in the main character's face when the main character is furiously calling out for some help. Any help and not receiving it, shaking his faith to its bedrock. And as these fears culminate, these confusions climax at the end of the song where he growls, there's no use. He unloads on himself to pull it together, screaming into the void to cease his doubts and, well, shake it out. This is by far the most violent song on the album. Just take a listen to the final chorus. There is absolute desperation here, a tearing and clawing out to some semblance of realization or confirmation. But this song introduces our first major foray into addiction, and the at least partial reason for its existence. In the midst of the character's downfall, whether as a result of the addiction or a catalyst for it, the protagonist is using some artificial high to try and reconnect with God, having felt abandoned. From the beginning lines, another and another, I can feel it now, I felt the Lord in my father's house, we get the idea that he's longing for some other time when the feeling of grace was more easily present rather than a feeling bestowed by damaging forces. Thus, we enter into a bit of a double entendre with the song's name being repeated over and over in a way that may be meant to recenter his faith in God, shake off his doubts, and otherwise shake himself out of this drug-addled rut. 
This song then has interesting implications for later in the album because through this comparison, it is setting up an idea of dependency on faith similar to his dependency on his addiction that then fully comes into question later. This dependency blinds him to any other help, and we get almost a chastisement over a friend attempting to assist following a moment of self-reflection provided by his faith a rending of his flesh to expose the inner turmoil. It's most obvious in the bridge. Kill off all my skin And I felt the way within Reveal the bigger mess That you can't fix here, he says that his friends wouldn't have been able to help no matter what, as the truth revealed a bigger mess that you can't fix. This dismissal of his friends continues from the previous song here and through into the next, a trend of a reliance on, or rather a desperation for, the omnipotence of God to see him through his hard times. He even chants to himself, are you tired of being alone? Despite his friends seemingly actively attempting to interact with his issues. Commonly, an addiction of any sort is a particularly isolating state, drawing one into themselves and making them resistant or blatantly unwilling to change. Again, we may be getting a bit of a double read here, with the question either explaining his desperate attempts to call back to God, or it could also be an unaware moment of understanding, that this isolation is the reason for his loneliness, that he has to search out help somewhere else in a moment of clarity. This second read begins to bubble up more toward the surface in the next song, I've Got Friends. At first glance, this chorus doesn't feel very nice. I've got friends in all the right places, I know what they want, and I know they don't want me to stay. As we talked about with this line earlier, this really feels like it could go one of two ways. Friends that are done with the protagonist, or friends that are worried about him. However, considering the way the song unravels, it does seem more likely that it's the latter. Friends in the right places telling him they don't want him to stay implies that his network has aligned itself in such a way to make him realize what's been happening. And the first line of the song finds him admitting this fault. Mirroring the another and another from Shake It Out, he states that he is dirty on the ground, in his lowest state, and he's got plenty of proof to show that he's in a bad way, to prove beyond faith that he is struggling. But just as much as he tried to be there for his friends when they needed something bigger than he thought he was equipped to handle, so too does he hope and believe he'll be able to call upon his friends when he most needs it, which in his current state could involve help that's needed rapidly. This moment of realization, however, comes at the cost of his faith again, similar to the only one. In verse 2, he begins to backslide again into the addiction, a trend that will continue throughout the album, seemingly one step forward and one step back nearly simultaneously in the midst of this seesaw between reliance on his faith and reliance on his community, using his reliance on his addiction as almost an intermediary. <laughs> 
As he gets closer to one side or the other, he's able to shed some of the baggage, but as he finds some truth in the other side, he dips back into the uncertainty between, needing the addiction to stabilize. This verse sees him stabilize in that dirtiness, singing that, The dirtier I sound, the best I breathe. He had just begun the verse with a plea out for someone to give him a reason to continue before giving up once again when he finds that fighting for that faith wasn't rewarding him with anything worthwhile. Again, he reverts back to his friends and tries to build strength through the repetition of their help. And so in Pride, the song begins quite optimistically. He finally feels the calming breeze, about ready to close the book on his addiction. He has his friend, his friend group, his pride, and himself. There is still a moment of doubt, a single spark of suffocation as he feels for a moment that he can't speak, before casting that thought aside and confirming that he still has control. But, just as is to be expected with escaping that which has the tendency to control you, it is far too easy to fall back into similar habits. His act, his faker face, fails him, exposing him back to what he was attempting to escape. This is voiced through his seesaw back into his examination of his faith, placing himself in the company of the king and the beast here, God and the devil, instead of his friends. But this rapid teeter finds him battling this new anxiety, coming to claim his voice again, and this time succeeding. There's a peculiar element of belief in deserved punishment here, however, almost chastisement for having abandoned his faith for the comfort of his friends. Though we considered pride previously in the first verse to be about his friend group, it's also possible it literally meant the protagonist's pride, his hubris in his belief that he could abandon his faith and work himself out of this situation without the Lord's help. And so, comparing himself to Jesus in the third verse with his wounded feet, the song beginning to build up, the character calls out to anyone who will listen to look at him and see him and help him. He sings me over and over, interspersed with one C, a weak, pathetic call for someone to even notice him. And so the final section of the song finds him fully engrossed and fall into the addiction. Take a listen. We 
get the recurring another and another phrase mixed in with dead neck, broke head, and cheap trick, all subtle references to drug use or other sinful behavior. The song crescendos through this section, becoming more and more violent, seeping darkness and despair into the music with an element of anger and grittiness that grows, as if a growing anger at himself and a growing element of the toil it's taking on his body. And despite In My Teeth's relative lightness musically, we enter into a state of treading water, barely keeping afloat and calling into question everything. If the story so far has been a seesaw back and forth between friends and God in a time of crisis, the distance between marred by a sludge of painful addiction, this song is finding that seesaw beginning to fold inward on itself, dipping its middle section slowly further and further into despair and doubt. All references to religion, and specifically Jesus, in the song sound incredibly sarcastic, poking fun at how ridiculous it's all starting to seem to him. Jesus don't come around unless we pray each day for 500 days. There's quite a bit of snark here, a passive-aggressive look at how little he's been affected positively by his faith. Immediately after this, we really get a sense of his isolation, how distant he feels from what he used to have, calling out that he doesn't know Know what you want anymore. What else can he do or say to find peace? Well, for him, in this moment, it's his addiction. Take a listen to the chorus. never really needed it anyway. The bottom's gonna bury us anyway, so I'm doing what I got it to stay awake. Basically here, the protagonist is saying that everything is coming to an end someday. Everyone is going to die, and ultimately it seems as though his connection to God has been dependent and one-sided. Casting this off, saying that because this fate is inevitable, his belief doesn't matter. It won't change anything. One day he'll still be buried, so he's doing whatever he can now to keep himself afloat without these life vests, sinking into whatever feeling he can feed. These feelings of mortality are common on the album. In his most desperate state even, in Shake It Out, we had the protagonist sing that he was done being done with the funerals, at least for now, implying that his aversion to witnessing death had been waning. But it's hard to tell in that moment, especially with the anguished and distressed pleas to shake out his doubt in his faith, or his reliance on his addiction. Whether or not this was something he truly had moved past, or something he was trying to convince himself that he had. After all, a fear of mortality is a fairly common thing. Just as he sings in this song, What Happens When I Don't Know What Happens, many of our feelings toward death are a product of the fact that no one can say with certainty what happens to us after we die. Are we granted eternal ethereal life in a promised land, or punished in endless suffering? If so, is it based on our morality, or is it merely based on which god we've exalted at the time of our death? And if not that, 
what then? Do we resurrect into new lives? A different species, perhaps? Do we instead retread the same life that we've lived before? Deja vu showing remnants of past lives in the hope that one day, through trillions of possibilities, we become the best version of ourselves? Or do we instead just cease to be, erased from existence in a single moment? Our bodies going from aware to unaware, a light switch of consciousness, moving from someone into something. Religion is one of the instruments that humans have either devised by themselves or been granted by some benevolent force to ease this consternation, to calm our incredibly imaginative and macabre minds from worrying ourselves into living unsatisfying, paranoid lives, lives content to fear what will definitely come rather than change what may already be happening. And so, due to its nature as a soothing, empowering device, the loss of faith can be devastating. A breakdown of resolute truth that had been a bedrock of that individual's sense of self-importance. If you can't believe that what made you had some plan for your life and granted some assurance of your longevity beyond that, the world you live in has to be fundamentally restructured in your mind for it to even make a lick of sense anymore. And $100 exemplifies this beginning of this restructuring. It's not even that I'm all angry Just wanna know why you would do this thing you said There's an understanding in the story so far, he's been hoping to find some peace of mind in either his friends or his faith. In the lack of these, he sinks further into addiction. As it becomes more likely that his beliefs are crumbling, it's implied that he begins to search out more aid from his friends. In I've Got Friends, he specifies that if he needs help, he'll need it quickly, a comment on his delicate state. But in $100, it seems as though those friends may have failed to come to his aid as quickly as he hoped. In his conference with them, his mind constructs an interpretation of the scene as one where he is barely a blip on their radar. Women's magazines stacking on top of a picture of me when I tried to call, no one answered. This implication that he's just an afterthought, not something to display or think about or even answer, leads him to act the same way to this other character that he did to Jesus just one song ago, saying he's not mad but wondering why you would do this thing. The end of the song, and subsequently the end of the first half of the album, sees the protagonist scream out at the top of his lungs that he's fine. He's totally fine. He just needs $100 from you, and you, and you, and you. Basically saying that, if you all can't help me, that's fine. I'm fine, I promise. But the least you could do is send me some money. You owe me that much. And so the character is definitely in the beginnings of his lowest state here. The first half of the album sees the character fall out almost entirely with both his faith and his friends and sink even deeper into the addiction. And I Can Feel Hot One is about this absolute rock bottom. rock bottom which seemingly exposes the reason for his addiction, the traumatic situation that led to this moment, the death of his wife. 
Before we get to this revelation, however, we have to travel through each of the verses. Gone is the bombast from the first half, the lashing out, the violent screaming. At least for now, it's an eerie calm, a sorrowful despair. Verse 1 sees him feel another wave of pain, casting aside another friend holding on to make a point, and sinking into verse 2 where he elucidates this ignoring of the friend, reiterating the sentiment from the end of $100. He's totally fine, he promises. He's clean and stable for sure. Verse 3 then winds a thread connecting his addiction to his vice and his dependency on God, telling how he became absorbed by it before showcasing in verse 4 that he feels abandoned, mimicking the few hundred day absence from in my teeth. We travel back even further in verse 5, calling back to shake it out as he tries to work out his pain, confessing that he wants someone else to confirm that he's fine, because it's becoming clear that his voice, or him in general, is unsteady. And finally, he slips into restless night after restless night, isolation eating at him, and his only moments of peace are when he can feel his heartbeat taking him down, seemingly implying a dangerous slowdown, a passing out of sorts. And finally, we fall into the bridge, where the scene unfolds. And I could tell it was over from the curtains that hung from your neck. And I realized that then you were perfect, and my teeth ripping out of my head. And it looked like a painting I once knew back when my thoughts were not entirely intact. So I prayed for what I thought were angels, ended up in ambulances. His pregnant wife seems to have hung herself, and his prayers out to God to save her were futile. Instead, it's humans that come to the rescue, causing this shakeup of faith from before. However, at the end, in this reminiscence, he receives a new dream, a new vision at the end, one of life inside his wife's womb, his daughter's life beating and alive. And in this moment, this reframing of the trauma, he finds a moment of light. Really, for the first time in the album, this daughter that still exists that must have had some kind of consequence from his addiction or depressive state, that he now has some recontextualization to repair, to recenter on that which he can control. His wife may have been lost, but he didn't lose his daughter. One life was taken, but another was not. Now, obviously, repair is no simple task, and to dig himself out of the black hole that had been consuming him, it's likely going to take more than just a soft revelation. <laughs> After all, we have four and a half more songs to go. But rather than outright refusal and a scorched earth policy to his faith, my friend Marcus returns us to the familiar state of uncertainty from the only one, with a tone to match. A major key again, finally. Verse 1 sees the protagonist taking care of a friend who suffered assault at the hands of a God-fearing father, but the second verse seems to imply that he is again at a state similar to shake it out, almost chastising himself for doubting again. This is an unhealthy situation, veering dangerously close to the tipping point that led him into disaster in the first half of the album, undoing the acceptance of his pain in the moment of clarity he had just one song prior. 
The chorus even finds him switching back and forth between the obsession with belief and the complete denial of it. back and forth between you mean everything to nothing and you mean everything. But the most important part, beyond setting the stage for the resolution we're approaching at the end, or are we, the most important part is that in verse 3, he lets his friend help him. He's helping me find my meaning. This after the general dismissal of his friends in the first half of the album, people who had been wanting to help, where this doubt-fueled desperation for help from God completely overshadowed everything else and drove the decline into his despair and addiction, punctuated and accelerated by a single moment when he did reach out for help in $100 and felt abandoned. Feeling abandoned by both lifelines is what ultimately led to his final plummet, but here he's beginning to reconsider the doubt in his faith while at the same time allowing connection with his friends, his support system, a safety net in a way, should the home he felt in his faith, mentioned at the end of the song, fall apart. Now, the following song, Tony the Tiger, like a song will always do in these breakdowns, fundamentally recontextualizes some of what's happened before. Much of this song has to do with the protagonist in a bit of a rough place with his significant other. Lines like, we were a bridge on top of gaudy water, and what did you mean when you said it's destructive and you sank yourself right into me, evoke both a troubled dynamic as well as a possessive or toxically dependent one. Even the end of verse 2 continues their argumentative behavior, the protagonist rebutting her claims that she knows something when he believes she doesn't. A fairly common relationship argument. But hey, you ask, didn't his wife, you know, do the whole thing with the curtains and the ambulances and all of that just a couple of songs ago? Yes, yes she did. And we know that it's the same person because he mentions something left inside of you at the end of verse 1. Now, in some way, this could be a note that this song takes place before that event, as he doesn't know exactly what she has inside of her, let alone a daughter, as he learns in I Can Feel a Hot One. However, we get a small hint toward it being after the attempt, with the chorus repeating over and over the line, didn't think that you would actually do it, sandwiching a bridge that includes a reference to her sleeping the whole ride home. Now, notice the word choice I used just just a moment ago. Attempt. The event at the end of I Can Feel a Hot One was an attempt to which she was hospitalized and is now being brought back home. This moment wasn't the reason for his addiction. It's possible it was a result of it, actually. It's the moment, instead, that brought him back to reality. The moment that re-centered himself. Now, this is not to say that an attempt on one's life is a good way to spark a wake-up call. In fact, if you or anyone you know are experiencing depressive thoughts or are leaning down a darker path, call your country's crisis hotline or find a professional to talk through. In America, it's super easy now. It's just simply 9 These things are a part of a lot of people's lives, and so it will end up in music every now and again. A few albums we've covered have used 
these feelings as storytelling devices or as explorations of their own pasts or psyches or fears. But it is never our intention, nor should it ever be the goal, to romanticize depression or suicide. Most of the stories of these albums are hardly about that anyway, but rather the road to recovery, the methods with which to battle these demons, and the underlying hope for a better future. As we've also said here before, suffering is not a prerequisite for art, for creation, for something that will leave a legacy. So please do not deny yourself help because you believe it will make you a better artist, because you don't think it will help, or God forbid, because you don't think you deserve it. Lean on on your support systems, all of them. Humanity is community, and we are almost always better together. But going back to the album, if we think of the attempt as the realization point, the minute his life fully hit rock bottom, with everything proceeding as a doubt-fueled addiction mess of faltering belief in faith and friendship, we start to understand why the songs are building from that point, and finally understand what he meant when he said that in that moment she was perfect and he felt love again. Because in the moment that she was saved, he understood how important she was to him, and subsequently remembered how important the rest of his life was, to which he could then start to rebuild. And finally, in Everything to Nothing, the almost namesake of the album, he's allowing himself to exist in faith and doubt, intertwined and simultaneous. On his build-up, reconnecting with his friends, bringing his wife back home, he finds a note written in a jacket pocket from his grandfather that startles him. For the beginning half of the album, it's understood that his problems with his faith were incredibly isolating, the loss of that foundation prompting him to turn toward himself in a doubt that became personal and self-reflecting. As a result, it's likely that he felt this was something only he was experiencing, which in turn would promote another recurring of self-doubt. Why am I the only one who feels this way? Reiterated in The Only One at the beginning, he felt he was the only one who was in this religion that does the things he does. But this note that he finds has its own shred of doubt and uneasiness in his faith. Listen to the note. I'm a lost one, you see, we'll get clean and we'll meet with him eventually. Mirroring his exact doubt and his exact wish for redemption, for an escape from his addiction, he gets an instant sense of connection, an instant sense of understanding. He immediately sings, you mean everything, a retread of the chorus from my friend Marcus, where he had his other growth, which then leads into a final crooning of repeating the chorus from that song 
further, you mean everything to nothing, a few times before finally singing, you mean everything to nobody but me. His doubt now exists in tandem with his faith. He is reclaiming his belief while at the same time confirming its unlikelihood. And this leads us into our technical final song, The River. I think I know everything Funnily enough, this is the second album that we've covered that's ended with a song called The River, the first being from Garth Brooks' Rope in the Wind, which, no lie, also had reference to faith. But this is not really a surprise. Water, and rivers specifically, have always been revered for their importance in human civilization, and have since become synonymous with life, rebirth, and purification, all extremely common themes in religion. Here, he has firmly planted himself back at the proverbial feet of God, wanting for forgiveness, for peace, for the grace he felt before the shaking of his faith. He begins the song with references to metaphorical wounds, cracked ribs, and a spear in his side, calling out to be saved. These are similar to a few of the wounds biblically inflicted on Jesus while he was already on the cross, as he called out for help one last time. For a minute here, he sings out in the same type of desperation that he had in Shake It Out, a fear for what may come if he doesn't find peace. And this yearning carries over into the choruses as he nearly screams out for him to be able to see again, to have that hope, have that security and safety from the fears he felt, washing away his sins in the river. But this desperate plea becomes less desperate when placed around the bridge. I'm gonna leave you the first chance I get. Here, the protagonist is tempering his expectations, wanting with full raw hope to be connected to faith again, but allowing himself the space to leave the instant that it becomes untenable again. By placing these boundaries, by giving himself the ability to rely on himself, he has grown, escaped either dependency, and become a giver of his own security and his own hope. And as this song explodes out, the feelings of redemption firm and glowing, loudly blasting, rhythmic explosions of sound mixed with a beautiful and hopeful piano part, the song carries finally into a secret song at the end of the album titled Jimmy He Whispers. So Jimmy, I've heard the voice of God He whispered fear is logical and he said it's magic wonderful And here, softly, this idea from the last song and the reflection and growth that he experienced in the back half is solidified. 
Again, a mixture of belief and doubt intersect, with God on his mind, but also knowing he'll free himself should he need to. Knowing that there might be nothing after life, the chances are slim, but he wouldn't want to believe otherwise. That they'll know when the rapture comes, or they pass away and sail into the sky. But as if finally mixing his thoughts into one final moment, a friend he considers a brother, an incredibly close companion, tells him that his fear is logical in response to hearing the word of God, before also saying that it's magical, wonderful even. And so, as this song finishes, so too does the album. A wild ride from start to end, covering a man's disintegration and reformation of community and faith and the consequential rise and fall of addiction at the churning and recursive isolation of lacking either of those lifelines. Now, it may be true that a life-changing event ended up, well, changing his life. But as is often the case, the only real change can occur when it is nurtured and the underlying aspects that led to despair in the first place are addressed and altered. His desperation for grace and his dependency on his friends became like crutches, crutches that even he pointed out in Everything to Nothing to be holding you from moving on. When those foundations were shaken, things began to crumble and a pit opened up to swallow him whole. The album then instead advocates for community and faith as constructions on top of a foundation created by the understanding that you are in control of your fate, that you have the power to create hope within yourself, and that you will survive if one or more of those differing beliefs and connections ends up faltering. Doubt is an essential part of survival and evolution as it's the tool that gives us fear, our survival instinct locked and loaded, but it is also what allows us to grow ourselves, to invent beyond what has been established as law, to believe in something beyond our realm of understanding because doubt exists beyond what can be seen. It is a factor of not believing that something is the way it claims. In some ways, doubt is as important to belief as faith is, because you can't have faith in what you can't see if you can't doubt what you do see. In the intersection of community, belief, and doubt, we exist, complex and varied, able to lean on those we call friends and family and support them when they need help, have hope and drown fear in situations where neither seems possible, and finally, allow ourselves to prepare for the unexpected by feeling deep somewhere below that not everything is expected, that we are at most in control of ourselves, and that it is beyond all all essential to prove that to the people we surround ourselves with, the places that we have the privilege, but also the choice of calling home.
Thank you, everyone, for listening to today's episode of Throughline, Manchester Orchestra's Mean Everything to Nothing. As someone who has fallen out of faith, this was an incredibly poignant album to cover, dense and musically rich, written by the band when they were barely 21. A lot has been said about this album already, so much so that it's deserving of much more time than we'd reasonably be able to cover here, so we've made the difficult decision to end the episode here. In the future, we definitely want to come back to this band, and possibly this album, and lay out the wealth of information about what's already been said. From panic attacks to the loss of faith to dreams of car crashes and, well, addiction, it's a lot to cover. But it's also somewhat similar to the theory we already had. But as we close out this episode, I just wanted to thank all of you for supporting the podcast and helping it grow. Albums have such an important place in the telling of new and powerful musical stories, and as we explore the different time periods, styles, genres of the past and present, we can only hope and, well, have faith that music will continue to provide stories that people want to hear and stories that people need to hear. Music has an incredibly unique ability to understand and mirror back how we feel in a way that is impossible to put into words, but that everyone knows how it feels. It's a reflection of our psyche and an exploration of humanity's triumphs, faults, and growth. And I'm so unbelievably honored to be able to be a part of that story in my own little way. I can't wait to see what else is in store for our little podcast. Check us out at AJ Throughline on social media or anywhere else that you find podcasts and leave us your thoughts, your comments, your concerns, your complaints, your revelations. More than anything, we want you to be a part of our story as well. So until next time, we bid you farewell from us here at Throughline, and always remember, the only wrong way to live your life is one that hurts others. Thanks for listening. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.